our next album on the docket is uh, Good Apollo and Burning Star Part 2 um, No Word for Tomorrow uh, Burning Star 4 Part 2 <laughs> I do apologise um, and yeah again no, that's Ollie, it, that's it's it. not you who should be apologising <laughs> it's Claudio Sanchez who should be apologising for his concept of mathematics <laughs> So, um, just to let you be behind the curtain a little bit, listeners. So, uh, this is recorded a bit later on from our previous uh, session. And it's Saturday night um, with uh, us in the UK and Robin Amsterdam. It's the night before my 33rd birthday. And I'm a little bit pissed. So, this will be an interesting little podcast. It's a bit, uh, let's hope it goes well. Um, no more for tomorrow. I remember you had second Rob. Which I'm I so did. glad now, is up there for you. I would like to start with a retraction, if I may. I don't okay. know. I don't know what the rules are on this, but as Ollie just mm. said, we're recording this several days later. I have been listening to nothing but Coheed. I mean, literally mm-hmm. nothing but Coheed <laughs> for the last five days. Uh, my fiance, who is a Coheed fan, by the way, has has me on a Coheed Out Loud ban at the moment. When she came up <laughs> yesterday for breakfast, and I was listening to my, I, I finally made my best of Coheed playlist. It's three hours long, and she maintains <laughs> that it just keeps playing Atlas and. Um, uh, in keeping secrets over and over again. Now, um, I would like to change my ranking. Oh, so not 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 this dramatically, not mm. dramatically. This is new, um, but I'm for it. I'm for it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I had in keeping secrets of Silent Earth three first, mm-hmm. and No World for Tomorrow second, yeah. uh, and then Good Apollo third. Mm-hmm. Here's what I would like to do. I would like okay. to revise that top three as follows Uh, and I will show my working out (laughs) No World for Tomorrow is now at number one Good Apollo is now number two In Keeping Secrets is now number three I'm going to talk you through it briefly In Keeping Secrets is still and will probably always be my go to Coheed album is the one I got into them on it has some of my favourite songs and moments and as I mentioned probably too many times in the last pod you know there was a 2014 remaster which was a bit marmite with the fan base which I really like and which helped me kind of rediscover um, a love of the album by kind of um, opening up some of the more uh, of its time sort of production elements Mm. however what I've realised this week in terms of just what's music for having a good time right yeah and the the good apollo uh geology whatever you want to call them (laughs) um they they do that they deliver that in spades specifically um i've realized that no world for tomorrow is the only coheed album i think on which there is not a single song that i don't like and okay. while it's never been my like go to, like oh, I fancy listening to Coheed, you know, I, I'm probably going to put on In Keeping Secrets or um, or Good Apollo or more lately the um, the most recent one. Um, right. I've listened to No World for Tomorrow two or three times over the last couple of days, and uh, basically, I think that as a body of work. 
as as a, an attempt at something, and we can talk about that uh, lately because I do think we need to contextualise it with what was going on in the band yeah. at the time first. Um, I think in terms of production, I think in terms of sequencing, and I think in terms of just being a ridiculously ambitious rock record that at no point falters in that ambition, I think No World for Tomorrow edges the rest of them. I, th I think it just, it doesn't get a lot of love, enough love, I should say, for reasons that mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll get into. But I think we are now, <laughs> for the second time on this podcast, talking about my favourite Coheed album. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to try my best not to upset you tonight. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, but this is the great thing about this band, is that there yeah. aren't that many bands where you're going to have such disparate um, views in terms of yeah, no, best, and best and worst. And, and those sort of bands are always the most interesting. So, Chris, tell Rob um, your tell, ultimate... Tell me why I'm wrong, Chris. Tell no, me no, why no, I'm tell, wrong. <laughs> tell Rob your ultimate disparaging statement that you told me the other day about No World for Tomorrow. I can't even remember. What did I say? Um, you said, and I quote, it's just classic rock worship, isn't it? Well, yeah, that's basically yes, what I was going to say. Yeah, it's, it's a classic rock album, which is fine. I'm, I'm probably a bigger classic rock fan than most people my age have any right to be. Um, Definitely more so than me, because but, I'm not. But it's not what I go to Coheed for. 100% fair. I, I absolutely see that. And I, th I think that um, the counter argument I would make is that I think what you've done is you have you've pointed out what I love about it right yeah, it's taken yeah. something I don't like which is classic rock I love <laughs> elements of it yeah but mm. as a as a as a genre as a concept and as a reality particularly as someone who's been to download a few times <laughs> and what it's done is it's it's basically stealthed a classic rock album in as a coheed album and I'm on board with that it turns out. Yeah, so maybe it would be fairer to say that it's not that it's my number two Coheed album, it's that it doesn't fit in my Coheed rankings, and it's my favourite classic rock album. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> so, so, well, um, I just want to go to a quick counterpoint first. It's the singles. I mean, I love Feathers, I adore Feathers, yeah, yeah, yeah. but... Neither of them are cla uh, neither that or the Running Free are classic Coheed songs. I think I think it's really important. Uh, like obviously, we'll go into the context of actually the workings of the band and everything, but purely just the context of this album coming after Good Apollo One. Mm. Um, I think played a big part in my feeling towards it. Like it to me at the time was massively disappointing. Um, mm. A is the running free as a as a lead off single, and then the album as a whole. And I think it's it's almost impossible for me to separate that that disappointment at the time. To as much as like so many of the songs on it have grown on me a lot more since it came out. Oh god, yeah. Um, oh god, yeah. And I think I think part of that is kind of just music tastes and being able to appreciate just kind of music for fun and things as well. Like you say, has, has played a big part in that. Um, but yeah, there's still parts of it that are on my listens through for this. I've just, I, I, yeah, physically cringe and struggle not to skip some of them. Really? Um, yeah. So yeah, let, let, let's go into those for you, yeah. Chris. Well, should we should we contextualise the album? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and then talk in detail because I do think that that is a hugely important part of. I think it's a big part of why I'm not as keen on it as well. Actually. Yeah. Well, it's also a big part of why I wasn't keen on it at the time and why this is such a big turnaround for me because I think I was where you were at 
at the time mm. and that distance and everything that's happened since has i think just opened up this it's basically like um yeah i can listen to it now without the baggage and i think the baggage was a huge part of yeah of the whole thing um so so ollie i, I know you're the leader did you want to lead with this or i should shall i try to recall what i seem to remember was going on with the band at the time because okay, fuck me there was so, some drama <laughs> yeah so, so 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 we can both collaborate here basically the main um the main stri- string of it is that Josh Eppard had left the band at this point to be replaced by this album and for one album only, uh, the one and only Taylor Hawkins of um, Alanis Morissette's touring but band. But that's not no, um, strictly true, is it? <laughs> no. Um, okay, tell me more. So, Is it not Taylor so Hawkins jo- all through this record? Josh Eppard was replaced, um, I can't remember how quickly, but I remember thinking it was it was quickly enough that I figured that that the guy was looking for something else, right? Josh Eppard was replaced by Chris Penny from the Dillinger Escape Plan. Now, mm. I'm going to put my cards on the table right now because this does become relevant later. I yeah. do not a- appreciate the Dillinger Escape Plan. I'm not going to say I don't mm-hmm. like them. They're an incredible band. It's just not mm. for me. Yeah. And he, I, they're one of these bands that I have seen live more than any other band I don't like <laughs> because they are <laughs> always supporting or on festival stages at, at, yeah. at gigs that, that I'm at. So I think, I think the Dillinger, I think like math, jazz, crazy, insane. Like, like obviously the guy has to be an incredible musician. I remember thinking yeah. to be in that band, but mm. um, is he the right choice for co or rather mm. no, what a strange choice, but I'm looking forward to, to yes. hearing how that works out. Um, they did the Neverender tour, which we talked about on the last pod, and that, if I recall correctly, when it hit London, it was it was this lineup, right? Which is which is mm-hmm. the original front three: Mick Todd on bass, Travis Seaver on guitar, and obviously our Lord and Savior Claudio Sanchez, and Chris <laughs> Penny on drums, playing, yeah. um, you know, Josh Shepard th- songs. Yeah, Josh Shepard songs. But then the night that I saw, because In Keeping Secrets was cancelled was no world for tomorrow and it was it was just it was incredible like i remember thinking this is amazing this band were always good but they are better than they've ever been i can't wait Mm. to hear what comes next now for contractual reasons chris penny remained under contract to the record label um to whom dillinger was signed at the time i I don't know who that is Um, relapse relapse records thanks ollie now Uh, if I I think I've got this right, the although they work with labels, Foo Fighters have essentially been their own self-contained operation for some time now, right? Ro- yes. all, all going through Roswell Records, which is Dave Grohl's record label, and what that means in practice is that the members of Foo Fighters are essentially free to do whatever the fuck they want because they yeah. don't have a record yeah. deal in the classic sense, and that's why so many that's what particularly dave grohl and taylor hawkins but also you know when when sunny day real estate got back together they all kind of have that freedom to just fuck off and do things because they yeah. don't have uh this these incredibly restrictive record labels which are uh, record deals which were particularly prevalent at the time so the story was that chris penny had written no world for tomorrow with with coheed in cambria and that he and taylor hawkins had worked on the drum parts together or rather you know he'd shown them to taylor hawkins is how it was kind of presented to the world <laughs> and taylor hawkins was recording for no world for tomorrow 
uh, Chris Penny's drum parts just on his behalf because he wasn't allowed to. And I, I'm going to come out right now as a coheed truther and say that <laughs> I do not believe no. that that is the case. No, not for a second. <laughs> not for a second. But can I just jump in and say, like, one because this is, I think, the biggest weakness of this album for me is the drums, and I, I think Taylor Hawkins is a brilliant drummer, and I think you, you said something on our group chat earlier today, actually, Rob, about like uh, John Bonham comparison, which obviously is, you know, you go from Bonham to Grohl uh, as a direct, like, obvious kind of influence and link, and Taylor Hawkins, I think, is of that same school. But well, he was he was the only um, person that could have drummed in Foo Fighters, like, but, yeah, 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 and and but. To me, that that only um, exaggerates the classic rockness of the album. Um, whereas, if Josh had still been a part of it, perhaps that would have given it the kind of slightly more quirky, coheed kind of edge to things. Whereas Taylor Hawkins doing it instead kind of just fully amplified the classic rock aspect to it, which I think is a big part of what I recoiled from at the time. So I think I think under. Under normal circumstances, you would be right. But I think that... So so the reason that um, Josh Eppard left the band, and I, I think we need to not shy away from this, is mm. by, you know, by his own admission and you know, by the band subsequently, his spiralling heroin use. Yeah. Um, yeah. And by all accounts, he and Mick Todd were enabling each other yeah. hugely. Yeah. Josh wanted to get clean, and and Mick Todd did not. Now, something that gets overlooked quite a lot because it never impacted the actual recorded output is that both Josh and Mick were fired mm. pretty much at the same time, right? Coheed fired their rhythm section, and it was like, oh, okay, they just put out this incredible step up, good Apollo 4, uh, oh, shit, I guess that's it. Yeah. And then the next thing you know, Mick Todd is clean and sober and back in the band, Chris Penny's officially the drummer, but Taylor Hawkins is is playing <laughs> on the, on the album. Um, it's just yeah, if you want, if you've got a problem with a drummer who takes heroin. Interesting choice. Uh, I mean, I think he's been clean for a long time now. I'm just saying that that's an interesting port of call. Um, so to your point on the classic rockness, um, Chris. Before we hand over to Ollie, because yeah. I really want to hear what he thinks about this. I, I think you're probably right. No, in fact, you are unequivocally right. It, it, that is absolutely added to the classic rock, rockness of mm. this. But I think that what Josh would have, would have brought to this, which is um, a groove that, that I think Taylor tries to, to, to find in places, mm. maybe you know, with mixed success, um, I don't know if he would have been able to bring it to this album on account of what, what was according to everyone in the camp a, a completely just destroyed relationship with yeah. with um with mick and and this brings me to my other point about this album is that i i said um earlier i think it's probably their best produced album i mean that your mileage may vary because the classic rockness a lot of that is in the guitars right so if you don't like the mm. guitars in this album you're going to disagree with that but um for the first time in their discography um, Mick Todd's bass has just so much room to breathe in yeah, the mix. Yeah, yeah. And ironically, uh, well, probably not surprisingly, if he, if he really was clean for this, he gives a career best performance on the last thing he plays on for, for oh. Coheed. And ob obviously, as a bass player, um, <laughs> I, I, have a lot, I have a lot to say about um, Zach on the, on the next... Um, 
podcast, the next episode. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, this lineup that currently that exists of, of Coheed is, is definitely my favorite. But I think that what, what Mick Todd does on this album, just it's such a crying shame because if he had not done what he subsequently did, and I'm sure we'll come yeah. to that, I think <laughs> that um, there could have been... Um, yeah, this, this this just could have been... Uh, it could have had everything I like about it and have brought back that groove yeah, that, yeah. that you have. But I just don't think those people were capable of doing that at that time. And that being the case, I think this is probably the best we could have got. And I think it is... I think it's a good Taylor Hawkins performance. He does... Ex- like Dave Grohl, he knows that he's great so he knows when not to just overplay. And yes. I think there yeah, are some yeah. moments specifically, um, like the one I said in the group chat, particularly like um, on, uh, I have to call it up now just, just to make sure, but um, it's, uh, yeah, on the title track, No World for Tomorrow, there's the stuff on the middle eight, the real Led yeah. Zeppelin yeah, yeah, slow yeah. stuff. Now you're right, Josh probably wouldn't have done that but neither would Chris Penny, I, I don't think. I think there are certain, like, Hawkinsisms all over this album. Yeah. And uh, I'm not going to go say it's, it's the best uh, Coheed drum album because I think Josh Eppard is the best drummer for Coheed. Yeah. Not, yeah, yeah, not yeah. the best one who's played in Coheed, the best one best for, for them. Best for them, absolutely, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think the short version is basically everything you don't like about what he brings to this I really do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially in the context of what came next, I suppose. I think that does make a difference, doesn't it? Yeah, it's two yeah. extremes. Mm. Yeah. Ollie. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that kind of leads me straight to my, um, one of my best parts, which is what an absolute fucking rage of the title track is. Yeah. Just straight in, bam. Like, you couldn't have hoped for much better after the last album kind of I mean obviously we had the two track before it but kind of came in with Welcome Home you wanted a banger the size of that to start this one and you got it with No Well for Tomorrow it's just yeah. and this is right a straight, theme with straight, the band straight, right? not to 100 this is like a theme with Coheed albums yeah, there is yeah, always yeah, that sure. big epic massive song at the top of the album yeah. which, which and, you know, and somehow mm. it never feels like it's trying to recreate no. what came before. I'm always so excited to hear what no, that track absolutely. is going to be because you know it's going to be a stunner. Even, do you know what? And we'll come on to this. Even on Year of the Black Rainbow, yeah, 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 absolutely. the token prop, uh, like Receive Wisdom, and uh, sorry that we're jumping ahead, is, is that, you know, here we are, Juggernaut is the, the, the one thing you salvage from the album. But no, uh, <laughs> you know, the, it, it opens real strong. But yeah, you're mm-hmm. right. Coheed's give great opener mm-hmm. um, also one of the best parts um, I mean, how do you feel the way you... generally Ollie like that, that's what I feel I'm missing oh so so yeah like um, I said um, in my initial ranking uh, that there was a real struggle between uh, this and um, second stage turbine blade for my third place um, because I fucking love this album um, there's part, there's a lot, there's, um, a fair bit of it I don't like, which we'll get into later, but, um, amongst, the like back I said, end the by t- chance, yes, um, but, um, amongst the title track, um, 
Mother Sup- and the run from Mother Superior, Grave Mason, <coughs> excuse me, Grave Mason, Gunslingers, and Justice and Murder. Absolute fucking ten out of ten ragers, all of them. And yes, it's classic rock worship, but God, are they so fucking fun? <laughs> well, it's classic rock worship done incredibly well and with it, everything you go to Coheed for massive riffs stuff that strays just just the wrong side of Twee but yeah. but, 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 but you can forgive them for um, yeah. and then just insanely epic overproduced bits that shouldn't work yeah and some and some wonderful uh, Claudio vo- vocal ticks on this um, <laughs> oh, boy boy <laughs> A little boy, boy, boy. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know what? Right? And, um, I, I, and uh, <laughs> uh, not forgetting, there will be justice in Moida. <laughs> this isn't a war, it's a Moida. So, so I was texting my friend Jay, who is the person whose favourite album is No World for Tomorrow and who has perhaps influenced me in, in this because we've been talking about it a lot. And I was I was saying, actually, funnily enough, that... that um, that I've just realised it has, you know, when I was putting this that playlist together, I just realised how many of the individual songs that I really like from Coheed are, are, are on this, and that I thought it was um, a really, really well um, se- sequenced album. And uh, but I said the one song actually that I wasn't sure about. I don't dislike it. I just think that it's um, it's a little out of place. Is, is Mother Superior. I mean, it, the transition from Mother Superior into um, uh, Gravemakers at Gunslingers, is that what comes next? Mm. Is yep. absolutely 10 out of 10 top shelf coheed, right? But you get <laughs> yeah. a six and a half minute song before that. So that song yeah. needs to stand on its own. And that to me feels more like something off Good Apollo 4, right? It's a bit more of the listen to what the flower children <laughs> say. And when I said, yeah, actually, Mother Superior is is the only song I think that I'm like, I don't dislike it, but if it wasn't there, I wouldn't be mad about it. And he just texts me back in capitals, boy, boy. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a lot of love, a lot of love for that. Yeah, Yeah, I've got it done as my my best song on this album. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah, and here's Second the thing. Play. I've just told Se- you it's my Se- least Se- favorite Se- song, but I'm not about to to, to yeah. argue with you on that because I get it. I totally get it. Mm. I think I mm. think that, um, oh God, this band. Like I've really realized. Just you said at the top of the pod that that I've said that they're my favorite band before. And I think what what I've said is, if you told me I could only listen to one band's discography forever, it would probably be Coheed in part just because they're so long that you know it would take a long time <laughs> yeah. to get bored but they're also you know a band who've released nine albums of which I only dislike one so yeah. I think that makes them my favourite album by um, but you know automatically um, but I'm you, you know I'm not they could put an album a song on that I'm like nah this song I could do without and you could say no that's, that's the best song on the album and I'm just going to go yeah okay fair like yeah. that that's just the magic of them because it's um, until they are, which is coming soon, when they're not even inconsistent, they just do. They have such range. They yeah. have such range that there's very few things. There's a lot on this album, and a lot on the one before. That if you described it right on paper, this weird-looking nerdy 
comic prog emo band from New Jersey and they're writing what in this case is you know basically like this is I think their most rock opera yeah. uh, type album at, at least until um, Vaxis right until the, he- the Heavenly Creatures yeah, really yeah. brings that back in um, but they still they don't forget that each song has to stand on its own merits See, I think that comes to what I was, I was gonna, just going to say. Like Something else that I've remembered thinking about why this one is so low down for me as well is comes back to what we were talking about last time with what the different things that we kind of get out of Coheed or go to Coheed for. I put, I sort of don't completely agree with how I've put this now, but I put that this one I feel lacks the kind of ambition and scale of Good Apollo 1. What I'm I think more it does, I'm getting does, at, it does so deliberately. Yeah, I'm getting more out of the fact that actually they're yeah. focused on the simplicity and on the songs, like you say, yeah. the individual songs, rather than the, I feel like as a whole project and a whole album, Good Apollo 1 is so much more vast and kind of like, intricate, like I suppose. Um, like they've stuck they've started playing bigger places, they've yeah. written songs that they think would be fun to play in that sort, those sort of spaces. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But I think as well, I don't think you can take, and this is pure conjecture, but I look at them, especially when they're playing live and, and, and look at the influences, you can't take the, you know, guitar behind the head, 80s hard rock <laughs> lovers out, out, of, out of that no. band. And they, you know, I think you know, they're on record saying that a good Apollo, they sort of thought, well, no one's ever going to give us this much money ever again. So we yeah. need to go <laughs> fucking 70 millimeter IMAX yeah. on this. And then it did really well. And people were presumably like, cool, do you want to do it again? And at that point, especially after, um, I guess, two years, it would have been of touring those songs and that, that you know, I think although it's got some individual bangers it's it is more of a like mid-paced album it's yeah. not surprising to me that the reaction to that is to come back with uh an, an album that i think can be summed up by the intro to uh grave makers and gunslingers <laughs> yeah. i think just the first three seconds of that song it's like <laughs> right, exactly. See, interestingly, interestingly, yeah. I hated that song at first. Of course, you did, and, that, and this, this uh, proves my theory. I, it's one of my favourites now, but I hated it at the when it first yeah. kicked in. The first listen through of the album, I was like, "Ah, oh, fuck no!" Like, yeah. and um, I think that at the time is the metric for how do you feel about this album? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the same I way think, as I think um, the the weird baby voice acoustic um, <laughs> opening to um, Good Apollo 4 leading into Welcome Home it, it, you, you know your, one of your reaction was either like what? or <laughs> yeah they've completely lost their minds this yeah, is yeah. great <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, before we do uh, like favourite songs and stuff I'd like to just, mm. just, just do one specific low light and I, I alluded to this when we were talking at the top of the uh, the podcast before we started recording it has to be noted we can't escape <laughs> this this album has not just the worst cover art in the Coheed and Cambria discography <laughs> some of the worst cover art of all time it looks like it's been drawn by Napoleon Dynamite 
it, it, <laughs> it looks like it was devised by, drawn by, and approved by Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> it, it is someone who I guess is meant to be a cordio analog. Oh. He's wearing bootcut jeans in space for some reason, <laughs> but no t shirt. It, 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 again, like, like the perspective, the, the, <coughs> the perspective's all wrong. The proportions are all wrong. It's like it's like a child's drawing. Um, the the thing is, right? It's so like it's like a child's drawing. It's exactly like I a child's drawing. I was so obsessed. I'm with, pulling it up um, right now. I need to be looking at this while you say whatever it is that you're I, about to well, say. Well, I feel like the artwork of the uh, of Good Apollo One was so incredibly good. Um, like not just the as in like. Like the book, I, that was at the time when you'd still buy a CD and actually look through the lyric booklet and all that kind of thing, right? And all the artwork around that album was incredible. You had the, like the image of the like the guillotine and the wings and all that kind of, you know, all these kind of amazing stuff. And so, when genius the, simplicity as well, because yeah, that, yeah, yeah. even that four, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was like there's a lot more gone into the th- the thought around just how eroded those letters yeah. are, even though it is just a sort of. <laughs> How much more red? Yeah, yeah, yeah. More red. Uh, and, 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 and I fucking love their cover art for In Keeping Secrets, yeah. just the moon, moon yeah. in the sky with clouds. Yeah. It's simple, but fucking wonderful. So when yeah. this album got announced, um, I I was straight on there. I pre-ordered it from the American store so I could get the bundle with the bonus DVD and the T-shirt and all this kind of stuff. And then... Came with those annoying boxes that didn't sit yeah. properly on your CD shelf. And then the artwork happened. And then, <laughs> and then it arrived, and I've got this American size large t shirt that fits me like a dressing gown with a hideous, like, Star Wars y poster version of the shit artwork on it, <laughs> which I've never worn out in public. Why, you know, why on earth would I do that to myself? Um, and then, like doing the thing of excitedly op- look, opening it up, looking through the artwork, and it's all that bad. Yeah, for, for a band that puts so much importance in this stuff, and, and right up to reissues, because the the uh, we, we may have talked about this um, earlier, but the 2017 record store day remaster of Good Apollo, mm. uh, for which I I got up and went and queued. Uh, I was on holiday somewhere, um, queued to pick it up. The discs are themed in the exact same eroded black and reds and black and whites as the yeah. as the sleeves of the album itself. It's fucking beautiful. Um, and this is just... I've got it open now in high res, and it's <laughs> even worse than I remember. Okay, right. I mean, just, I'm, let's just... I'm going to... Uh, I, I actually think that um, I'm going to do this. Like even the text I, I, is horrible. Even the text it, right? is horrible. <laughs> okay, so let's start with the text. That's a really good shout. Okay, that's not a band logo. That is, yeah. you started drawing it and you realised you misjudged how much space you had to use. <laughs> the M in Cambria is just—it's reaching out on its own, right? It's—it's it's going solo in the middle of the world. <laughs> The, the H in Coheed looks embarrassed to be there. <laughs> one, one of its legs is too long. Um, it's the, like um, someone forgot there was an and in the name of the band. The, uh, the, the M has a deeper V than a hair metal band from the 80s. <laughs> Does? The R is, is sexually harassing the I in, uh, in Cambria. Um, no World for Tomorrow 
is when there. like someone just went, guys, you you haven't put the title on, and someone whipped out a ruler and a crimson and pen. This is something that always confused me, right? So because it's, it's, it's the same font as the pink as the Pixar logo. I've just noticed. <laughs> This this is officially good Apollo Part Two, right? Oh, yeah, this is so bad because it doesn't say that anywhere. No, um, but again, I th- I do wonder if that is is someone at the record label going. No one is calling that last album Good Apollo Four no. Part One from Fear Through the Eyes of Madness. Everyone's <laughs> calling it Good Apollo. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. have to give this one a, se- a different name. Um, so some questions: Why has he not got any shoes on? Yeah, I, I, um, the same reason he's not got a shirt on, I guess. You only need bootcut jeans for the end of the yeah. world. More or? importantly, why is the world splitting in half just very minimally between his legs? Uh, right. That's a reaction to his also, fashion choices. <laughs> why, 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 why is the why is the world splitting, and it's also his back splitting in half? Seemingly, he's got a gulf where his spine should be. And um, there's no shadow. And, uh, He's not got and, a shadow. Uh, is he real? Uh, and he got and, and he got the mishmash. So on on the left you've got the Patronus towers from Kuala Lumpur, and on the right, <laughs> on the right you got you got fucking Isengard for some reason. <laughs> Why is Isengard there? I mean, to be I fair, mean, uh, I can draw a line from Isengard to to Coheed a lot more easily than yes. I can to this topless dude in bootcut jeans. <laughs> um, <laughs> Staring at the keyworks. There is, with you know what? Yeah. With, with, with sperm asteroids flying off for no reason whatsoever. I feel like I feel like you like if at this point, if you're listening to the podcast, and at this point you haven't like got this picture up to look at, do it now because you, <laughs> there, we can't. We could talk about this for an hour. We couldn't do justice to how bad it is. Um, and lastly, the, I just just what I mean. I'm no art expert, but I'm pretty certain that this looks like a piece of concept art that mm. accidentally just got published. Like, so, like um, It's like the Stonehenge thing in um, Spinal Tap, right? You know, like someone has a little model and it's yeah, like, yeah, okay, yeah. cool. And, yeah. and how's the real one going to look? Well, so I, I, I was, this, that leads perfectly onto what I was about to say, which is that, so when we watched the um, documentary for Black Rainbow, I was trying to find there's a couple of other like short documentary things and stuff that I know I'd seen of Coheed so I was trying to find them and one of the ones that I found I think I sent was like a short one from this album um, and there's a little bit in it just a tiny little clip of Claudio in the studio like doodling on a sketch pad um, and so, uh, someone's uh, like whoever's filming or whatever just asking well, what you're doing is like oh I'm just sketching some ideas for the artwork for the album to send to the artist we've got this amazing artist working on it um, and I laughed out loud at that point. It's like, <laughs> if you have, either you're deluded or you didn't get him. Because um, <laughs> just no way. No way. Right. So maybe, it, I mean, which leads me to wonder, did they end up just using Claudio's concept doodle? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, what, just, just the worst artwork in the game. Yeah. yeah. It, really really questionable decisions um and lastly before we get on to kind of best songs something else that i i actually learned this very very recently but i but i think it's very interesting in the context of what um what comes next is this is the first album um in terms of production on which they did not work with uh michael birnbaum and chris bittner who had produced i think the just just the previous two it might might have been everything i'm not sure the first one was uh 
was uh, no yeah they produced they produced the first three albums okay. right and on this one they decided to go with well rick rubin who doesn't really produce albums no. he shows up every now and again as we now know from Corey taylor and just goes <laughs> press that press that yeah. but the dude who actually did the work is a guy, who, guy who's I, I can never pronounce this dude's surname We've, we right, talked he, about him in the mastodon episode nick, oh really right nick, he's nick. fucking great man like yeah, yeah. he's nick one of these unsung heroes <laughs> yeah. He it's, does, yeah. He, he's the, he's basically Butch Vig's guy on, on the Foo Fighters stuff. Is it Blood Mountain he, that he did for Mastodon, which was my favourite? I think. Um, uh, so, so this is Nick Nick uh, Rasgulinet. Yeah, no, I, I, I think I think I, th- that. I think Chris he did Once More Around the Sun. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds right. Yeah, yeah. Once More which Around the Sun, which makes sense again. It's the most classic rock. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he also, I mean, I don't like. Um, Beartooth particularly but the one mm. album of theirs that I really like the sound of which is the one that Caleb claims to have self-produced was co-produced with, uh, with him so this, okay. this, right. this this dude is good right he he he, know, he hears like what's just, the, just, the, just, to, just to pop in uh, Beartooth the Audi every time I die uh, carry on. <laughs> the, the what? Sorry. Oh, Audi every time. Yeah, every time I Audi die would, would have been the name that you're looking there for. There. Uh, no, no, completely, completely agree. But no, on their third album, they went again a bit like classic Rocky, and mm. it's not objectively good, but but for what it is, it's quite good. And I think that this dude has a real ear for hearing like mm. what a band are trying to do. Yeah. Um, and you know they basically did two albums, not with um, the the two guys who did the rest of their stuff, and then you know went went back to that then, which we'll talk about on the next episode. But but my point, my broader point is this marks the point at which they stop working with um, the team that kind of made them what they are. And I think everything we've talked about, from probably the drum, um, the the choice of drummer, because I'm pretty sure that would have been brokered through. Rick Rubin and, and mm. Nick with the surname that begins with R um, through, <laughs> through to um, the classic rock guitar sounds on there and everything. I think, I think that is um, a byproduct of them um, moving away from, you know, the people that, that, yeah. that produced literally everything they'd done up to this point, which um, we'll, we'll explore further in a minute <laughs> when we talk about the next album. But um, yeah. I guess so. Best best songs then. I mean, you know, Chris is going to say none. No, I. Uh, <laughs> do you know what? In, something I've been thinking about today. I re-listened to this album today uh, just to kind of keep it fresh yeah. in my head for doing this. And it's actually probably, possibly the hardest album for me to choose my favourite song for because the ones that I like, I really like, um, and the ones that I don't, I really don't. Basically, so the the the, the contenders. So the ones you really don't like that just just out of curiosity for me, as like I said, this is the one where I think mostly the, the second highs half, and lows aren't there, but like the consistency. For, yeah, yeah, I get okay. very little out of the whole anything after Justice in Murder. I don't really, really? get yeah. anything out of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, sorry, sorry, sorry to jump in here, Chris, but um, yeah, the end. Yeah, complete you know, I've got the I've got the end complete, which is part three of the the suite mm. on this as as the worst yeah. song. Yeah, so I think so, even I agree with you there. So for for me, the end complete series is the least memorable theme dark of songs, and um, for me, the worst song is on the brink. Yeah, I've got that as my worst as well. But just because it yes. ends the album, where's like the final cut? And most of the renders end on a like a good like good not a bang but they end on a you know quite a soaring kind of euphoric what, moment what, what, on the brink just kind of ends I mean, with a bit of a I mean, plop it's just like I mean, it, 
inkeeping secrets ends on either the light or the glass and a light in the glass or 2113 yeah. depending on what you want to count yeah and both both of them are fucking phenomenal <sighs> do you know what you're you're right i think I'm putting this back, right? I'm putting this back to number two. <laughs> but with the caveat, with, with the following caveat, right? If you end this album after Radio Bye Bye and you've still got right. a five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten track album at that point, best mm. album Kofi ever made. If you count Forward just... of House Atlantic as a song. Uh, well, okay, but, you know, like... Still, they they've got shorter albums, right? Yeah, the yeah. Afterman albums are what nine tracks nine, a piece. Nine each, yeah. So you've got, in my opinion, the best album that Coheed made is contained, and sequentially almost within this album. But yes, you're right. It it goes on for three or four songs too long, and they're they're the three or four songs that I don't really think about. I also really don't like the Hound. Oh, okay. I quite like um, it. I, 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 but but, but um, that going into Feathers is quite a dull portion of the album. I feel like The Hound is the most bad 70s rock example. Like the synths at the okay. beginning are pretty horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and for, that, for a song that's track three on the album, it, it's just a bit of a dud for me. I feel like yeah. No World for Tomorrow into Feathers would have been incredible. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, so what about your best then, Chris? My, I've gone in the end. So up until today, I had Grave Makers and Gunslingers in my best in the end, considering it was the first one mm. that made me really, really <laughs> not like the album. Um, but at one point, it would have been Justice in Murder um, a few years ago. That was my favourite on here. Feathers, I've got as my highlight moment, is like the chorus of Feathers, just because, yeah, wow. Yeah. Um, the Running Free, I've never been super keen on. There's just something a bit awkward about it that I don't quite get on with. It, I mean, it's it's like, fine, but I don't. I feel like there's I've something got, in there that's not it's not quite I, coming I, out. I, I like that song, but I I think there's an argument to be made. It's the closest that Coheed have come to trying to do something they've done before, and that is maybe. um t- ten speed. I feel like it's a bit spacey and a bit. I hear, I hear, um, I hear, I maiden all over it, and I'm completely put off by Mm. my I maiden. So, I've I've gone for the title track in the end. I've gone for No World for Tomorrow, which I think is kind of the most coheedy track in terms of what I like about coheed. Yeah, you know, there's Um, a good reason it's 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 the it's the first proper song. Yeah, 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 exactly. but yeah, I, I, I like Mother Superior a lot as well for all its oddities. I think I maybe enjoy it more than like it, as it were, uh, for those yeah. kind of things. But yeah, so I, like, like I said, those, all of those tracks really, No World for Tomorrow, Feathers, Mother Superior, Grave Makers, Gunslingers, Justice and Murder, any of those could be my favourite. M- Mother Superior, while it's not on my list, but I, I think that um, it, it does do something that, that Coheed at their best do very well. Um, and it's what I'm going to describe as very cinematic yeah. songwriting, yes. right? Yes. It really, this is such a cliche, and I'm so sorry, oh, no, but no, no, it no, really true. takes no. you on a journey. Yeah, it does. I was I, I was going to pop in there with, um, I think it does for this album what The Crowing does for In Keeping Secrets, it's a sprawling epic. Mm. Yeah, it feels out of place, but actually it, it really does, does need to be there, Yeah. Mm. Um, which somewhat contradicts what I said earlier, but there we go, that's the beauty of this band. 
So I, I reckon for me it, it's 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 absolutely easy. I mean, I could I could have had any any one of those, but I'm going with no no of tomorrow. It, it is just objectively the best song mm. on on this album. Mm-hmm. I think Grave Makers and Gunslingers is fucking great, and I think Justice and Murder are great. I, I've basically chosen them on the frequency with which they would just get randomly stuck in my head when <laughs> I'm just going about my daily life. I think with Grave Grave Makers and Gunslingers, it's the intro as outlined earlier, and Justice and Murder just it's one of those coheed chorus right yeah, just yeah, yeah. you only have to hear so, the name of the song and you're like oh, i'm gonna have to go listen to it now <laughs> so um big a big shout out at this point for my good friend uh, richard morgan whose favorite coheed song is grave makers and gunslingers so it's actually richard morgan uh who uh coined the phrase bootcut jeans in space so i feel like i need to give some props there as well we've we've talked about this album and uh year of the black rainbow a lot rich and I. i've never actually met him but uh that is i would say 90 percent of our interaction on twitter <laughs> So we've done 45 minutes on No Well for Tomorrow. And let's, uh, <laughs> right. um, quick weary, weird beer break and then we're back for Year and a Black Rainbow. I am going to fill up this whiskey glass and then <laughs> here let's we, fucking do this. Here we, here we, here we fucking go. <laughs> so... To start our chat on the next album, The Year of the Black Rainbow, uh, we did something a little bit different. Um, We uh, reviewed a YouTube documentary. Um, Every beginning, uh, end has a beginning. And um, so here is us talking about the documentary. Sorry to tell you how to do your job, mate. Given the (laughs) content... Shall we contextualise the album and then then throw it to the chat? Because I think, like, there, there's you see a lot of the dynamics in that documentary that I think are pretty vital to how this album turns out. So by yeah, this point, okay. Penny is in the band officially and is allowed to record with them. Um, yeah. It's Mick Todd is on his essentially his last chance, which you know you don't get that in the documentary other than the fact that he literally says like one sentence he's, he's physically there yeah he's he's phys- physically there and that's a, and that's about it yeah. um and i don't know if you know more about this than i do but they made the fascinating uh decision to go with atticus ross to produce <laughs> the album who as most people will know is you know is trent Reznor's longtime collaborator and now the only other official member of, of Nine Inch Nails. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else, do you think, going in that's worth... But basically, from 2006 through to 2010-11, which was the cycle for this album, Coheed are kind of just perpetually on, on the brink of breaking up, I think, yeah. mm-hmm. in a way that we maybe didn't realise at the time. Yeah. And this documentary that you're at throw to and again we say this in the chat but it bears re-emphasizing was made by the record company as a promo for the album just just you have to bear <laughs> that in mind so yeah the year in a black rainbow documentary uh what a trip um thank you to rob for uh, making us putting us through that i feel is the uh, accurate way to put across um, how how I feel about it? Um, yeah, we were just uh, saying that we've never done a documentary before. We talked about B sides, we talked about EPs, talked about films in the case of Björk, but uh, 
never never, never a documentary so yeah guys initial thoughts on the mess I mean, there's a lot to go at, isn't there? Considering that it was a 20-minute documentary, if that. Um, mm. So the reason that I wanted to show it to you in particular, Ollie, is because, um, you know, I don't know in detail what our opinions on the various different Coheed albums are. I'm sure we'll have addressed that by the time people hear this. But the one thing we do <laughs> agree on, obviously, is Year of the Black Rainbow being just a horrible misfire. And mm -hmm. something that you have said to me on multiple occasions is that you thought it was the result of a creative battle between Claudio Sanchez and Chris Penny. And mm -hmm. I didn't know any better, you know, I didn't know anything about Chris Penny, really. I'm not a Dillinger fan. And then if, I guess about a year, 18 months ago, I was looking for documentaries about the recording of any Coheed album except that one. And that's the only one there seems to be one for. And I watched it and was just, I mean, where to fucking start? I think the headline is, Ollie, do you still feel that that is why uh, Year of the Black Rainbow turned out the way it did? No. Um, so it was based off an assumption, really, because... Um, We'll, we'll get into it with the actual talk about the album, but I think the overriding feel of Year of the Black Rainbow is a very industrial one. And um, I thought... So, previously with Dillinger, Chris Penny's main songwriting influence is a song called Phone Home from Miss Machine, and that's basically uh, a Nanish Nails rip-off. And um, a lot of Penny's songwriting hung over into Ireworks, the first album that he wasn't on. Um, but that has a very sort of heavy industrial feel to it. So I assumed from that um, that, um, that, yeah, the sort of um, dour and grey atmospherics that seemed to hang over Year of the Black Rainbow um, was down to him. But no, um, upon watching the documentary, it's all Atticus Ross. Um, you know, I was only... Uh, and also, it was lack of familiarity with Atticus Ross, other than his work with Nine Inch Nails, that, um, like, I didn't really know that he produced this record and what he'd uh, been responsible for in the past, which I'm sure we'll go into, a bit of no Jehoda. Um, but, um, <laughs> um, yeah... Uh, the, this, this, this documentary proves that his dour and po-faced attitude um, is, it was, was the undoing of this album, basically taking everything over, saying, well, it wasn't very good before I got here, but now it's great. And Chris, what's your take? Yeah, exactly that. It, like, it's, 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 it just seems like such a mix match. Uh, of of his personality and his outlook to the music uh, to theirs, um, which maybe that's what they wanted to kind of shake things up a bit. But it, I think the thing that we all kind of talked about and and agreed on, kind of one of the first things you notice is that there is not a smile to be found throughout. Mm. Like, and this is a documentary that was made by the record label to promote, <laughs> to promote the album. It, yeah. Uh, so you only have to wonder what didn't make it in. Yeah. 
Um, I thought it was interesting, right, that uh, the name of the documentary is Every End Has a Beginning. And that's very true, although perhaps not in the way that they intended when they named it that. Right, because at at the end of that cycle, they lost lost Chris Penny, they'd lost Mm -hmm. Mick Todd, they'd lost their record deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, weird, weirdly prescient. Yeah, so it starts, doesn't it? It starts with, it basically, the interesting thing about it, I think, is that it tries to set up an against all odds um, comeback narrative, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because obviously, yeah. lest we forget, prior to the recording of this album, they'd lost Josh Eppard, they'd lost Mick Todd, Mick Todd had come back in, but there were lots of you know drug mm. problems in the band. But I think from a career perspective, they actually, you know, unless you're nerds like us, you probably didn't didn't know that was happening, right? So it wasn't mm. like they were coming off a massive failure. Um, but the documentary... No, no, I mean, quite... Sorry to interrupt, but quite the opposite. Like, um, Good Apollo Part 1 was a massive, massive, huge breakout yeah, success yeah. for them. Um, seeing them nominated for Albums of the Year, left, right and centre in all sorts of publications. And No World for Tomorrow saw them continue to grow in size, like th- turning from uh, sort of an Astoria-level band to a Brixton Academy one. Yeah, completely agree. And, and that's why I think it's so fascinating that um, they, and this might be a subconscious indication of what was going on in the camp at the time, the whole thing has this air of, like, how are we going to come back? And it opens with Claudio Sanchez saying... <laughs> There was a moment where musically I hit a wall. I wasn't inspired to write music, which is a great way to start the documentary about your new album. <laughs> Let's be honest. Oh, yeah. Like it just does not. If if I didn't know, if I wasn't already a Coheed and Cambria fan, and someone showed me that documentary to kind of introduce me to the band and get me hyped for the album, like even just the the amount of how pretentious that intro of that documentary is that would be enough for me to turn off and that's not <laughs> again it's the opposite of, of what I love that band for because yeah. they're incredibly nerdy but pretentious isn't the word I'd use they, they know they're mm. ridiculous in terms of the whole comic book you know all, all of the stuff around it so to suddenly see them taking themselves that seriously is <laughs> just such a weird thing and you can like that, that is that is where I can only like I agree with Ollie where I can only see that being a, an Atticus Ross influence into the whole mood of the album and and everything surrounding it because I mean let's be honest in the in his interview sections Penny isn't exactly a barrel of laughs either um, but he isn't but he's the only person who seems to be happy to be working with Atticus Ross yes. Right, let, mm. let's work through the members. You get one comment from Mick Todd, and that is him visibly pissed off yeah. at being told how to play bass. I don't have the quote here, but he says something along the lines of, I've been in this band for X years. I know how to write Coheed and Cambria bass lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you got <laughs> Travis Stever just being nice. Just being his lovely self trying to hide from everyone. <laughs> yeah. But do you know what? Even even he alludes to there being some friction between him mm. and Claudio in terms of the guitar parts. Um, and I feel like that there was a really interesting documentary about a band, probably on the verge of breaking up, mm. that was just edited out to give us a 20-minute 
nothing because it is a nothing right you, the, you don't learn anything about, about the album do you from it right all the songs yeah. you, you learn this that Atticus Ross is a character from Spinal Tap <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? he yeah. does not appear to be taking the band seriously he doesn't seem to care about them or their music even when he's saying nice things it's sarcastic yeah. uh, he says hmm. uh, the song Broken is a uh, a very good rock song yeah and there's there's like an implied yeah but it sucks in every other way kind of thing <laughs> and um and ollie what did you say earlier that yeah multiple occasions he he kind of draws this line between what coheed were before he got involved and mm. what they are now yeah the, yeah like we, 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 um, so, uh, like, when we were watching, we were sending each other, like, sort of silly little voice notes that notes doing an impression of his awful <laughs> nasal voice. Just basically saying, uh, yeah, so, uh, so, uh, you know, their the, the music was fine before I got here. And then, um, then I told Claudia how to use a power drill on his guitar and... Everything got better. Let's talk about that. Sorry, (laughs) don't you can't just throw that out there. There is a scene in this documentary where, off the back of talking about, you know, we're trying to experiment with noise and do things differently. He's got Claudio Sanchez taking a fucking power drill to his guitar, like (laughs) what? And and he keeps talking about noise, and and it's what you said, Ollie. You know, you've got this guy who who just lives in the world of industrial. Mm. Mm. And he's trying to apply that to what, what are we going to call them? Prog pop? Because something yeah. that I find really interesting about that documentary, and it's I always go back to the album when I've watched it, is that when you hear the songs or the clips of the songs that are being recorded or played back in the studio, they sound good, right? They sound like like Coheed songs, recognizably yeah. so before Atticus Ross gets his fucking filthy hands on them. There's even a bit um, where Claudio is is doing a guitar part and he starts to play, you know, the... I I don't know what it's actually called, but let's call it the Coheed Overture, right? You know, the the melody that starts both in Keeping Secrets and Good Apollo 4. He starts to play that on um, his guitar. and, and, And second stage. And second stage, yeah, of course. And, you know, it gets kind of gradually more lush. Uh, until that incredible orchestral version on on Good Apollo. He starts Mm. to play that melody, and Atticus Ross looks up and says, oh, yeah, but, I mean, we can can keep the noise, right? We can make it noisier. It's it's (laughs) like the dude just wanted to brick wall and just destroy everything. (laughs) I was going to say, that was was the biggest thing I took away from it as well, was he, he... He never said it or said anything that really directly hinted at it, but you just get the impression the whole time that he sees it as... He sees the whole project and the whole album as a vehicle for him. And are like, mm. he's the kind of producer that I just think would be a nightmare to suddenly realise you're working with, you know? You'd, you'd work with him because mm. he's got a reputation and you know he's done great things. And then you're in the midst of recording the album you just have that moment and you're like, oh, he does not care if this album turns out how I want it to be or not. Like... Well, that's it. I mean, he's he's got, I suppose a legacy to protect yeah. right he's one of those kind of producers and he's going to yeah like you say be much more interested in how does this fit mm. into my body of work than mm. how does this fit into the band's body of work yeah. and that's why we ended up with 
that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, it, it, it's, 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 it's quite significant as well. He'd, uh, he'd got, come off the back of doing two quite good Latter-day Corn albums. Um, but And he might, might have thought, oh, I've got another one of those on my hands. I've got a stock metal band that I've just got to improve the sound of. Um, Bish, bash, bosh, job done, paycheck. Yeah, yeah. I think the the positive thing I'd like to to say, and then I'm, I'm kind of done with my notes, is is a shout out to uh, I don't quite know how to say him, but Joe Baresi. Oh, yeah. Just seems to be having a nice time. Seems to be loving his job. Is this the dude who he quite near the work. beginning? Uh, yeah, it's just like... he says, "I'm Joe Baresi." What more do you need to know? <laughs> but the guy worked with Tool. Right, yeah. and he spends a good portion of that documentary just going on about what amazing musicians Coheed are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, mm. he, I just, I know that he and Ascus Ross work together, but I, I would have been very interested to hear what the how the album turned out if he produced mm. it. Yeah, because mm. I feel like he got it, but yeah, he yeah. was obviously in the hands of the producer, and ultimately, you know, Ascus Ross get gets the say. Hmm. Hmm. Yep. God, what a bad album. What a really yeah. bad album. <laughs> but yeah, so uh every air what was it no, what did it call <laughs> what was it called? Every, every air entr- has a beginning. It's yeah. all on YouTube. It's about twenty minutes long. Uh I have a playlist I can link to and it's just it explains everything. Yeah, it really does. Uh and um, as an added bonus, you got a drum kit made of bins. Yes! Oh my god, how could I forget? <laughs> <laughs> a drum kit made of bins. Um, and let's not forget the the, the the another thing that kind of highlights just how bizarre it is is that one of the musical highlights of the whole documentary is the hamburger cheeseburger song. <laughs> Uh, I can't even remember why that happened now it was one of the instrumentals they were listening back to or something wasn't it and Claudio's just singing some nonsense over the top of it it's the only moment he seems happy yeah because he's singing a childish (laughs) song about Perkus (laughs) I was going to say about the power duel thing as well I worried that the like Atticus Ross uh, just aura is contagious because when Claudio's doing that bit with the power drill he's into it like he looks like Jimmy Page with a bow on his guitar. Like he's like, shit! I found the next level of guitar legend. Like, no, I don't believe. Don't believe the strange man in the corner. To be fair, though, Chris, if I gave you a power drill and said, "Take this to that guitar," oh, I've done. You'd do it and you'd love it. Yeah, 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 I've done. I've done. Like at uni, my band at uni, we we did some stupid shit like that that sounds fucking awful but you think it's funny because you know you've done it I think at one point I smacked my guitar strings with some smoked mackerel uh, <laughs> but critically you didn't put that out on a major label exactly that's exactly the point I was about to make I think about, I think I think, about five I think people have ever heard it uh, so I think it's really telling, right, that um, Ollie, you'll, you'll know if I'm wrong here. So, so do correct me if I'm wrong. But um, Year of the Black Rainbow came out on Roadrunner, right? Um, that sounds right. Let's co- uh, co-release between Columbia and Roadrunner. Oh, interesting. Right. 
So mm. the reason that's interesting is because they're back on Roadrunner now, um, and mm. Unheavenly Creatures was the first of a five-album deal oh, wow. that they signed with them. And part of the deal was that Roadrunner had to agree to let Coheed completely self-produce the albums. Wow, mm. okay. I wonder why that <laughs> might have been. <laughs> Fuck. What a <laughs> fucking mess. <laughs> I mean, okay, so, so much to go into here. I'm going to head off with uh, my, my ironic best part of this record, which is that Chris Penny only lasted one record. <laughs> it's, do you know what? It's such a shame because I remember hearing that he was part of the band and was going to be recording on this album and, and, being and they were so, so excited good live they were with him in the band yeah they were so fucking good live because even because at that point i wasn't really a dillinger fan like ollie had played me dillinger and i, I didn't really get it i wasn't really a fan but <laughs> i was a drummer at that point mostly and and so i had absolute awe and admiration for him as a drummer and so the idea of him joining, who was pretty much one of my like top three bands of all time at that point, well, it was such an exciting idea. So it only added to the absolute despair of the reality. So year year of the Black Rainbow, um, <laughs> I think not not universally, but almost universally acknowledged by everyone I know who likes Coheed as the worst I, one, even, even by the people who like it, I think. J- j- just just a disaster. See, I don't. I will say at this point, I've been saving this for this conversation. I don't think I hate it as much as a lot of people and as, and as much as, as maybe you two do. It is by a mile their worst album. Like, there is no mm. denying that. Um, so I think it's tricky because... I, yeah, it's the worst example of a thing that you really like. So yeah, so, yeah, so that's a good way of putting it. And yeah. I, and I and I actually, I don't dislike it in two two thousand twenty one as much as I did in two thousand ten. Was mm. it when it came out? Yeah. Um, again, the, the the distance is important when you come off the back of No World for Tomorrow, which remember I liked a lot more than you um, and you'd seen this lineup live and you're just like this mm. is going to absolutely slap mm. and I just remember being I don't I don't have this feeling now listening to the album it's just not one I go back to but at the time I had this feeling of being really confused because mm. Coheed had established themselves to me as one of those bands that just kind of didn't let you down yeah like mm. uh, there are no bad albums, only ones that are maybe slightly better. And I remember putting it on, and I think the thing that 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 struck me the most, and this does stop with me, is the 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 tone is just so relentlessly dark. And I mm. think yeah. we saw on that documentary that you've got some of that is in the songwriting, but they were working with a with a producer who it seems just didn't have the same aims as they did and what it makes for is a very confusing listen you know i've spent a long time um criticizing 
Chris Penny's drumming on this album for ruining the album. And, you know, Ollie and I had had these conversations about it being a creative struggle between him and, and Claudio that that led to him leaving. But if you if you watch that documentary, it feels like he knows what the gig is, right? He's yeah. listened to Coheed, he's played those songs live. If you listen to The Broken, which, uh, as, as Ascus Ross says, is a very good rock song, <laughs> um, there's the groove there, right? The groove mm. that you go to Coheed for, yeah. that, that Josh brings, that is arguably lacking from No World for Tomorrow, is all present and correct on that one opening yeah. song. And then it's just like, 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 it's like Atticus Ross saw Chris Penny as a tool, right? I have yeah. this fucking robot drummer <clears throat> um, on, this, on this album and I want him to just go ham. So it's really, it's really interesting. I've got the Wikipedia page for it open here. Um, just because I want to check a couple of things when we were talking about it before. But one of the... There's two things here that I find really interesting, which are both quotes from Claudio, right? One of them being the, about Chris Penny's contributions. Um, and he said, there are a lot of songs on this album that I'm just not sure we would have been able to execute had we not had him. Which That's true, but I don't know that does, it's yeah, a but good not, thing. Exactly, mm. exactly. Mm. This is exactly what I was going to say. And the other thing that he said, and I'll sort of, is, is what I think is my main barrier, I suppose, and the main thing that this album just doesn't do for me that all the other Coheed albums do so well um, and is a sign of Claudio just deluding himself about the album, I think, uh, is he's, he's noted that the album is very melodic. <laughs> Where? Yeah, yeah. Like it's yeah. it's not. If all the things you can you can praise it for, possibly that's not one of them. No. Um, Actually, I'm going to call up uh, Early Doors, an example of of what you just said, Chris, about you know songs that we wouldn't have been able to do mm. without him in the band. Guns of Summer, straight away, like the broken eases you in and yep. feels like a Coheed song, and mm. then that that is a i mean it sounds like three different bands playing yeah, yeah. simultaneous it's like when you're i said that for a, a practice few of the studio songs. yeah yeah i said that for quite a few of them yeah and you're getting bleed from three different rooms yes yeah. and it occasionally kind of just con con congeals into something that sounds like a song when the thrash metal band in practice room one yeah, yeah. are playing a beat in time with a fleetwood mac cover that's coming out of room <laughs> yeah. number three yeah and that that whole song I mean yeah there's no way they'd have been able to do it without that powerhouse but it didn't need to be done I've, I've said for that track that the verses shout, the verses are barely Chris. sorry yeah go on Ollie. shout out Chris at this stage for uh, tweeters and other heads oh yeah which exactly I was picturing as Rob said that yeah absolutely <laughs> it's exactly that combination as well like spot on yeah but yeah I said I said the verses are barely recognisable as Coheed in, in Guns of Summer like it, it doesn't sound anything like anything you recognise as them and I've said that as well it's like all the songs there's a few songs like that on the album which are technically brilliant um, but just utterly soulless essentially so, soul, soulless I think is the is the order of the day I mean even, yeah. even the broken and, and so Here We Are Juggernaut is probably the only like Coheed song on this album and, and I think it's you know it 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 was written, it feels like it was, they knew it would be the single, mm. um, you know, it's the start of, it's interestingly kind of the start of um, what we get a lot more of on um, 
the color before the sun which which is claudio being a little more open about the fact yeah. that he's not really writing about elves in space or whatever you know, <laughs> he's a documentary that's about his relationship with his with his wife um you know, I just, yeah, I think that the soullessness is, is what really makes it, it's, it's an exhausting listen, right? It's yeah. very difficult to listen to, not just because the songs are boring, but because there is no verve, there's no um, letter. There's no, it's, there's no, and there's no, like, this is a horrible word to use, I suppose, but like, there's no swagger to it. You no, know, there's no, no. like... It's po-faced. It's yeah, incredibly exactly. po-faced. They don't sound like they're having any fun, which and is... So, and, I think... Um, Sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry, chaps, no, no, but um, I, I, I think this is all related to just uh, what I zeroed in on as my worst part of this record because I could have gone on forever. It's just that no one sounds like they're having fun on nah. this record when that was such a charm of the first four. Yeah. Everything's just so grey and dour. Yeah. And <laughs> controversially for me, that's how I feel about Crack the Sky by Macedon. But uh, uh, <laughs> I feel I feel like that can be summed up with the with the 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 literally the opening track as well, where you'd normally have the band theme. You've instead yeah. just got this like two minute long, vaguely there dirge of noise, um, that to the point where it's pretty much pointless it even being there. Mm. Like, they've mm. always had that little instrumental at the beginning of their albums, so they've kind of... It almost feels like they've gone, well, let's do one, but let's do an Atticus Ross uh, drone sound one instead. <laughs> I, I, I would love to know, and I, I don't think we'll ever find mm. out, or not on the record, um, what the actual politics yeah. of the decision to, to go with him were. Because... Um, the two guys that produced the first three albums and to whom they go back immediately following after after this following you know the, the change of label and and with Josh Epphop back in the bands um, you know it, bands having relationships with producers that are essentially members of the band and, and then when that relationship ends the band never really recovering are you know they're, they're ten a penny i mean you know blink 182 and jerry finn are like the the absolute ultimate example from from my adolescence yeah. um but what's really interesting is you know they, they they've gone for two consecutive albums with name producers who are brands basically mm. right rick rubin the first instance and you know again your mileage may vary i liked it chris you didn't i think what we can both agree is that that album certainly lacked um uh, you know something that we might have come to expect from Coheed, which which I think is basically a product of them working with people who have a strong an artistic vision that, if not stronger than the bands, it's just not necessarily the same. For me, it works on No World for Tomorrow, but here I think that um, Atticus Ross and his his obsession with industrial relentlessness just they're the wrong band for that you know yeah yeah i think um i think to an extent he was kind of forced into that decision because he goes into the documentary saying we didn't want to do this album i was having no inspiration yeah yeah um around this time he was having more um more of a productive time with his solo project the, the prize fighter inferno so he didn't really want to do a coheed album but obviously he forced into it because he had this new record deal with this um, a sort of um, dual deal between Columbia Roadrunner. So is this... And I hadn't considered this, Ollie, but are we... 
is this one of those albums this, this feels like a relic from a bygone age but is this one of those contractual obligation albums that was doomed to be bad because no one involved actually wanted to make it I think I, I think it might be, and this might be an eye in the sky um, conspiracy theory, but I think it might be from Atticus Ross's perspective because I think, as we discussed on a documentary, he had done two fairly successful corn albums. Who are uh, um, they? Might not even be on Roadrunner. This might be a completely moot point, but um, he'd, 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 he'd done something in the same arena and thought, okay. I've got. I, I, I'm on this sort of long-term stretch. I'll, I'll, I'll do another one and kind of treat it the same, but it's not the same in the slightest. But like, yeah, just just a period of time when I think because people are still buying more CDs, um, labels had a real interest in right who's going to make this yeah. saleable and and perhaps mm. had. Uh, a lot more say or, or or at least Roadrunner were perhaps and this is all conjecture obviously I don't want obviously. to be like to make it sound like I'm, I'm coming from um, you know a, a, a place of knowledge but it just seems from the outside that, that they were like fuck it yeah uh, dubstep and corn what's the worst that could happen <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I- industrial and coheed sure let's do it <laughs> And it's, I think it's, it's, it's interesting sorry, that no, I was just going to say in terms of you saying it being a kind of obligation album as well, like the facts, like we're not, none of us are really invested or interested in the story side of things, but the fact that this oh, is yeah. the prequel album, mm. you know, that to me is another nod of that, of that actually, well, they've told the story or Claudio <laughs> has told the story that he wanted to tell, um, but they need another album. Oh, let's that- do a prequel. That like, is such such a good point, Chris. I, I one of the things I find I found most interesting and um, about about that um, documentary, rewatching it again before we uh, we came to this pod was co- no one, no one takes the story quote unquote of of, of Coheed and Cambria more seriously than Claudio Sanchez mm. and the obvious and very genuine. Uh, soul searching he was doing over you know I, I I don't even know if I if it needs the prequel and you want to be like it doesn't no but no one cares you're an <laughs> yeah. songwriter yeah just write some fucking songs and it took him five years to finally and I know Chris you and I disagree on this and we will <laughs> talk about that on the next um the next episode but when he finally did that it was a massive shot in the arm for the band, in my opinion. And I think they certainly felt that way. But he spent a long time, I think, laboring under this albatross he'd, he'd created for mm. himself of this supposed story about which I would wager most Coheed fans give a percentage of a fraction of a fuck. Yeah. Really. Like, I think... It, um, it, I'm just going to interject here. Sorry. Um... I think I give the most fuck about the Amory Awards uh, of, of of any of us, and the striking thing for me is that um, the prequel was originally um, going to be an EP, uh, uh, the bag on, the bag online adventures. That never happened in the end, and I an assume E-prequel. this. Uh, I, I assume this is this is the replacement, and yeah. it's. Well, it does sound like an EP's worth of material stretched out to a full <laughs> album, so. Pris, pris, fucking sightly, yeah. 
honestly. Yeah. But so so let's you know let's be a bit objective though, right? Let, let's let's find some some light in the dark. What I do think, re-listening, and, and like I said, Chris, you know, I, I don't hate it as much as I did at the time. You know, I think I tried mm. to listen to it twice and was like, right, they fuck this. It's it's uh, I'm never listening to this again. Um, I think when when Chris Penny is playing in a style that suits the band, and again, the best example of that I think is is the Broken. Yeah, um, you can hear what could have been something really great in there. It's still smothered under overproduction and and an obsession with noise over over yeah. melody, but I think there are some moments on that song and, and some moments on Here We Are Juggernaut where you're like, this this band could have been as good as they sort of promised to be on those tours. Yeah. Any other <laughs> positive things to say? I, I mean, I, like, um, the bro- I'm just going to say in there while you've mentioned it, The, bro- the Broken's my favourite track, just for, for the reasons you've said, basically. And it's okay. the one song on this album that... Uh, get stuck in my head as well like the melody of the chorus and things is something I go around the house singing whereas no other yeah. track on this album does that to me right, and te- right. technically you know um, Mick Todd is, is doing his thing which mm. I haven't spoken much about this and I feel like I'll probably talk about it when we talk about the change of lineup. but he he has a very unique star, uh, bass playing style because he's a guitarist who you know had to become the bass player for a, a band yeah. but but didn't do so in the like Mark Hoppus playing the root notes way and he has a very I think a very um, distinctive and incredibly skillful style yeah. and you know we saw in that documentary that his main gripe on this album was being told how to play and, and his yeah. his style that made all of those earlier um, albums so groovy and so kind of like laid back and 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 funky even you know no world for tomorrow um that's pretty much absent here apart from on um the broken and we we could see that's because he was being instructed to play differently by this producer who just wanted them to be something else i think penny would have been a big part like not penny consciously being a big part of that but the presence of Penny being part of that as well because like anyone who's been in a band knows the the bass and drums are, you know uh, uh, so when, when you, Mick you, was sober up, they were a great rhythm section they, they, have they really the, were those two instruments have the strongest relationship in a band um, and so if you've done four well three albums um, with that with that drummer as a bassist and you've got that groove and you've got that understanding of how that's happening and then suddenly you switch that out to two new drummers in two albums he's going to be mm. completely thrown he might know how to write a bass line for a Coheed song he doesn't know how to write one for that drummer playing a Coheed song um, so it's just a complete it's just yeah it's just some the, the whole album isn't it is just exactly like you said it's just all people coming at it from different angles trying to play a different thing at the same time it, it's weird it's one of those things where um when you if you describe it like this right a band who are on the edge of uh, uh, basically a create a creative precipice right they're, they're concerned that perhaps the main songwriter is concerned that he doesn't know how to write anymore yeah. um they've lost their drummer to um you know drug issues and they have a bass player who i believe during this period was relapsing into yeah. those same issues uh-huh. um 
and oh, so many times you hear that and then you know, the end result is is this incredible swan song and then you're like oh you know everything that was going on in and around the band was falling apart but they produced this masterpiece year of the black rainbow sounds like what it is which mm. is a confused band falling apart with mm. with the wrong person behind the mixing desk telling them how to pull it back together again yeah um so i'm just gonna shout out my best song here and i can't even remember why i liked liked it um it's it, it's it's world of lines i thought okay, I'm gonna uh, give I think, that a listen after this so i think i think i thought that was okay but do you know what's what? more interesting I've What's said, more interesting is my top three for worst okay. song. I, I was just going to say World of Lines. <laughs> All I've said for World of Lines is that for everything that's going on in that song, it's pretty generic and forgettable. But yeah. that does mean it's not a clusterfuck like some of them are. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's in the better half. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, Bronze Medal for Worst is Far. Um How dare they title their song after one of the best post-hardcore bands <laughs> of all time. <laughs> Um, I, can I just say on that one sorry I'm going to chip in with as you say these because it's going to be easier for me to remember what to say but that I feel like Far is a re- is one of the most frustrating songs on here because mm. the vocal is very typically coheed but mm. the drum beat is dull as dishwater and it's just one yeah. beat repeated throughout the entire song mm. so mm. why get a drummer like Chris Penny yeah <laughs> and get him to record one like four bar beat and then just loop it what the fucking the, point like a, a man who can literally play in fucking 34 eight yeah. or whatever you want to fucking make him do yeah. i feel yeah. like it would have worked better as like a low-key acoustic track but they just wanted yeah. to do something more with it i don't know but this this is both the genius the, and the um the it problem right with with Atticus Ross and with Trent Reznor and why they make such a good creative duo heavy if you like that sort of thing caveat there is that nothing is sacred to them right? you know <laughs> they they don't look at instruments as just like instruments it's like right what what sound can I create you know the the, the, the famous thing everyone loves to say about, about Trent Reznor is how he's one of the people that saw electronics coming into studios and was like, right, this is just another instrument. This is a way for me to manipulate Mm. sound, not a way for me to cheat at playing lazily. And I think what you've got on, on, on far is, is, um, Atticus Ross taking a similar sort of approach where I've got this incredible drummer. What happens if I just fuck up and fuck up his beats and don't, don't just let him sit in there and and, and play (laughs) it. Like I think, Oh god, this is going to make me sound like such a boomer, but like there is a time and a place for experimentation. But but Coheed are a like musicianship band. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. You know, they're not dream theater, obviously, but they're about it's like get them in there and just have them write and play their songs, and 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 you then you've got Atticus Ross just chopping and, and mashing it up and. <laughs> You know, oh, Coed, take go on, Chloe, take a fucking power drill to your guitar. The yeah, Edward Scissorhands of producers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um, silver medal uh, for worst song, uh, and, and obviously we'll get into your chaps later. But uh, uh, it's uh, Pearl of My Stars. Fucking boring. Mate, I'm I'm impressed you've even ranked them because honestly, beyond the ones I like, I haven't even bothered. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you going yeah. through them is reminding me, by the way, that even the song titles on this album are something are really boring. Just doesn't sit right with them. Right. Yeah, yeah, as much yeah. as I was criticizing 
them on the last record for for being so long and pretentious that I don't bother even knowing what they are. At least I know that they're there. This one, it's just all like when skeletons live in the flame of era. You know, it's it's just so Me- like made, made out of fringe, made out of nothing. All that I am. Yeah. <laughs> Is, is um, everything all right, Claudio? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be honest. No, no, it's not. And this Englishman um, with his fucking <laughs> toolkit that he's brought into the studio is not making things better. Um, number one worst song on this album is Coheed's worst excursion yet into psychedelic rock. Beyond on the brink, beyond the final cut. Well, I love the final cut, so that doesn't count. But. Um, <laughs> It's the Black Rainbow, fucking hell. What a boring, boring song. So, so uh, go on, Rob, go on. No, please, Chris, after you. I was just going to say, just because you've mentioned two of the track, the two tracks here that feature this, one of the one of the like production-y aspects of something that I do like about this album appears both on Far and the Black Rainbow, is that mm. um, like eroded guitar sound that they use for right. some of the lead parts. I think that's eroded, really... or was he just sanding it down? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think I think that's I think it's a really cool guitar sound. I think it sounds really good as a, like a, a lead solo kind of bit that they use every now and then like that. Um, that was one one like bit of the like production stuff that stood out to me as something that was like oh, I quite like that, uh, which was quite rare on this album. So I'll I'll defend that little element of it. But again, you know, I don't know who's responsible for that. What they're actually playing, uh, couldn't give a shit about. But the actual guitar sound itself. <laughs> the Black Rainbow, Ollie. Yeah, what I think is going on there is you've got Kohi doing something that it's so easy to do badly, but that they generally pull off. Mm. I think because, again, their collaborators know what, what to pull out of it and, and when to sort of... Um, guide them down you know the, the the long rambling psychedelic songs they've done in the past are still interesting I'm I'm not into that sort of thing generally but mm. man when they were touring Good Apollo and they made the final cut last what seemed like 20 minutes and yeah. then at the end <laughs> fucking guillotine just drops yeah. on the stage of the Astoria <laughs> and the wings open up yeah. and you're like okay <laughs> you spent your whole production money on that guillotine and Fair, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's fucking great. <laughs> yeah. So the Black Rainbow is is the coalescence of everything that that this album is and yeah. should not have been. Right. Yeah. It's it's Kohi trying to write one of their proggy experimental meandering numbers with fucking that guy behind the mixing desk just trying to make everything sound. <laughs> um, I don't. I, I've used the word industrial too many times, and it's not even particularly helpful here. It's just been, you know. I think one of you two said it was soulless, right? It's just had the life sucked out of it, and that can work. But they're they're still trying to do those epic prog yeah. odysseys, uh, whilst a dementor sits <laughs> at the, mi- the mixing desk and is like, "I'm going to take everything good out of this. It's so good." What's that knob, Atticus? This is the good knob, and as you can see, the fader is all the way down, and suck is uh, is right up there. I've just got I mean, this image of we, him. We, 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 uh, uh, just to say, Chris, yeah. we nearly we nearly made it ten episodes without mentioning Harry Potter. I'm so sorry. <laughs> 
And me of all people, I'm I'm so sorry. It's just uh, I'm just an old man desperately looking for a reference the kids will understand. You know. Yeah. Okay. Okay, Boomer. Maybe anyway, a face hugger then. Okay. Right. Just that song has got better, a fucking face hugger on it, and what is laying inside Kohi's chest is Atticus Ross, ready to burst out and go. The uh, the broken is a really good uh, rock song. I've just I've just thought of another like comparison of how I see him. Right, I've got this image in my head of Atticus Ross being like Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec, where in the documentary and all the way through the recording he's this po face, just like yeah, this is just how it is. And then they all leave, and he's alone in his studio, looking at what he's done, and just kind of gradually smiling and going, <laughs> like twelve uh, songs, fifty-five minutes, please and thank you. <laughs> um, oh God, the uh, Black Rainbow as well. I put in my notes. Uh, I, I, I agree with you a lot, about this one, actually, uh, Ollie. As well. I, I put that it just goes on for ages, with yeah. more and more going on. But yeah. nothing actually happening. Nothing actually means anything. Yeah. But here's here's the thing, right? Oh, I'm trying to prune that phrase out of my uh, vocabulary, so I'm very sorry. You say <laughs> it goes on and on and on, and I know that that's relative, right? I know that's relative. <clears throat> but I really think at this point it's worth just pointing out that Year of the Black Rainbow is a full, a full uh, 15 minutes shorter than good apollo 4 hmm. it is it is a good 15 minutes shorter than in keeping secrets of silent mm. earth um we haven't done this album yet and i don't know how you guys feel about it but like it's half almost half an hour 25 <laughs> minutes shorter than the unheavenly creatures mm-hmm. um and it is it is it, again five minutes shorter than no world for tomorrow which feels okay. like a fucking little mix album by comparison yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. it's not even long it's until we get to the aftermath it's their shortest album probably i didn't check uh <laughs> sex yeah, stage yeah. turbine blade but mm. it feels yeah like yeah. it takes forever ever and that's <laughs> the problem isn't it yeah, right? yeah. their it's, thing has it, always it, been making 10 minutes disappear yeah yeah absolutely yeah it's absolutely stunning isn't it no you're absolutely right yeah yeah this, this album feels like a fucking eternity and it's only 55 minutes long mm. if you presented me with a 55 minute long film i'd be ecstatic <laughs> yeah. i'd be like bring it the fuck on yeah um, but this is just an absolute chore. Yeah. yeah. From start to finish. Um, yeah, like, this could be a top five by itself, actually, just thinking. So, uh, albums that from, from artists I like that we've covered so far in this podcast that are just absolute toilet. Um, so I've already put uh, Jimmy Wells Invented and Björk's uh, Volta in there. So that's it for this round. Um, so as we discussed at the top of this podcast, we are going to split this into two parts and, well, also four parts. So um, this, this has been the first half, unofficially titled The Second Stage of the Black Rainbow. <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll come back in two weeks' time for our second part, uh, From Here to Mars, can unofficially we, can titled. We just, <laughs> sorry, sorry, Ali. Can we just close off with a... A word on the legacy of of Year of the Black Rainbow because lots of, of bands, course. right, have albums that their fans didn't like, and lots mm-hmm. of lots of bands have albums that 
the fans did like, but they don't, right? Which is always a bone mm. of contention with live sets. Yeah. I think that the year of the Black Rainbow is that very rare example of an album that both the band and the fans just pretend never happened. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. you get, I think you get Here We Are Juggernaut live a fair bit, right? But that is literally it. I, I, yeah. As as far you know, I haven't done my proper research. I didn't check Setlist FM, but I watched Coheed <laughs> whenever I can. They're one of the bands I've seen yeah, the most. Yeah. And the second that they had, particularly the material from the Color Before the Sun, yeah, you, that was it. You, you, uh, here we are, Juggernaut, and fuck everything else on that records. Mm. And I think that that says it all, really, yeah. from a band who can play their entire back catalogue probably yeah. just you know on on 24 hours notice even they don't go back to those songs and 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 do on cruise ships yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but the, the 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 ultimate legacy in the cliffhanger that we said we'd uh, leave this episode on is uh mike todd holding up an uh, a pharmacy with a shotgun and i think we start there next time <laughs> okay Ooh. fair enough fair enough so yes, um, we'll go. We'll go into shout outs here before we uh, before we close up. Uh, so um, yes, uh, we are a band. Well, Chris and I are in a band. We are called Myers Rod and Ben. Uh, we play a blend of post hardcore and post metal. Uh, we can be found on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the handle at m e a o a b. And this podcast is brought to you by Grimheart Promotions, our uh, live promotions that we want to get back going as um, as gigs start to come in, into place here in the UK. Uh, we could be f- so if you're in a band, if you're mates with a band, if you uh, manage a band, if you manage a venue, do sh- or you're just generally interested in uh, rag gigs that may be coming up in London and Surrey, we can be found on Facebook and Instagram at Grimheart Promo. Just to kind of tell you what's coming up, um, coming up soon. So on the second half, we have chat on uh, both Afterman albums, The Color Before the Sun, and um, Vaxis One, The Unheavenly Creatures. And just a reminder, we also have our top five on musicians that played on ex- <laughs> established bands what, uh, for established bands, one album <laughs> for one album only. Yeah, try 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 to if describe it, that. If, yeah, if, 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 I, if I don't trip over my tongue completely, uh, but uh, we might have an even more niche top five for our next episode in between the two Coheed episodes, um, where we're doing where Chris and I will be doing Paramore, ranking the Paramore albums. I cannot wait to listen be, to that. Will be a lot of fun, a lot of fun. So before we go, we're going to do our musical shout-outs. Um, so, Rob, do you want to get guest honour of going first? Have you got anything for us? Well, yeah. So, I, I don't. I mean, I think anyone listening to this is probably already well on board the, this train. But the Dirty Nil uh, released an album on the first of January. Outrageously good, and they just know how good they are to the point that they could put out an album on January first, and know it will speak for <laughs> itself. I've been listening to that album nonstop. Um, also the new album from Teenage Wrist, Earth is a Black Hole, absolutely fucking incredible combination of like shoegaze and kind of thricey post hardcore, but much more interesting than that makes it sound. 
Um, so those two records are so good. We've actually both uh, they've all, uh, both already been shouted out. On they have. Oh my god! I think okay. they're both. I think they've both been Ollie shout outs. But that just that's good because I since Ollie okay. shouted both of them out, I've checked them both out and I'm fully on board. So I mean, okay, so I, I have it's, good... it's actually from last year, but it's it's a band that I think a lot of people would like, and yet for some reason they never got a push over here. So this is an Australian band, and they're called mm. Tired Lion. Uh, they had an album from last year yeah. called Breakfast for Pathetics, which is good, but it's also really worth going back to their 2017 album, Dumb Days. Very much part of that grunge revival thing, but um, as much as I'm not going to say female-fronted as if it's a genre, I do think mm. that having a woman fronting the, the, that kind of sound gives mm. it something over your, your super heavens as much as I love bands like that real yeah. smashing pumpkins vibe to it nice. if you like grunge and you also have been digging all of those Australian bands that have been coming out recently like Press Club and, and Wax then yeah well worth checking out Tired Lion wonderful nice. lovely um, Chris do you want to go next yeah I'm going to I realised um, I'm going to have a bit of a just a kind of shout out moment for an area of the country at the moment so I, shout a, out geography yeah <laughs> so um, I went to Union Lincoln and there seems to be just a wealth of great small bands coming out in the kind of general uh, East Midlands area at the moment so I'm thinking like Lincoln and Hull uh, there's a uh, a record label that started up late 2019 called Trepanation Recordings who have been putting out a lot of they put out Pupil Size's album on cassette they've put out a lot of um, sort of bands that have already been releasing but they've put them on cassette versions or CD versions but they put out uh, an album by a band called Concrete Ships uh, who are from Lincoln um, album's called In Observance which is like post-psych noise rock <laughs> I don't really okay. know but it's very kind of uh yeah, sort of psyche, sludgy goodness. It's nice. Um, so that came out uh, fairly recently. Um, I should say, as actually as well, uh, do we know the band Mastiff? Um, yes, uh, yeah. so, I've seen them. So Trepanation Recordings is is Dan from Mastiff, basically. Lovely. Um, okay. Uh, who, who are whole based so that's why they've got a lot of focus on bands from that area. But uh, he's also mm-hmm. put out um, another one that I checked out came out the same day as the Concrete Ships one. It's an American band called Breaths. Uh, from, okay. from Richmond um, oh lovely album called Lined in Silver uh, which is mm-hmm. uh, it's just wonderful it's kind of there's melodic bits there's really hef- heavy like almost black metal-y bits in there it's, there's loads of stuff wonderful. going on it's really great um, and also another Lincoln band that I found called Low Moda who are very kind of 90s discordy kind of uh, you know clearly a lot of influence from basically Steve Albini bands um, that's how I put it so they're great uh, and I'll give a quick little mention to Ocris Records which is my best mate from uni Paul's little thing that he's just starting up and he's starting to put some his focus is he wants to give he's got some mates who have always been part of the kind of Lincoln music scene for the last decade never really put anything out themselves and they're starting to write stuff and record stuff extremely DIY um, but it's really interesting and, and he's kind of giving that stuff a bit of a platform which is really nice to see Wonderful. Okay, uh, so um, I've got I've got three here uh, to finish us off. Um, yeah, big mix of stuff here. So first one is a comeback album by a band called Genghis Tron. 
Um, now, this this was a band out out, out in the uh, late two thousand, sort of um, very sort of math corey sort of thing. If you think of um, sort of early Roloto Massey meets um, Three Trap Tigers sort of thing in, in the modern age, but. Um, with Greg Bruciato guest vocals, that's that, <laughs> that's brought up the house and um, was um, lauded by uh, uh, um, uh, uh, critically. Um, but um, yeah, they've come back with a very different sound and basically a very different lineup. Uh, they've come back with a more sort of dream poppy shoegazy sensibility. And um, yeah, the new album is fucking lovely. It's called. Uh, um, what's it called again? Dream Weapon. And uh, very lovely stuff it is too. Um, for the second one of, uh, of my three, I'm going to um, do an older record. Now, well, it's based off the fact that this band have come, uh, another comeback story, but i um, going to take you back to um, 2015, where I saw this band Trophy Scars um, with 68, who formed out the ashes of the chariot, and much missed Cornish screamo band Vales. And I love 68 and Vales, but uh, Trophy Scars for me were the best band of the night. And um, that was off the back of uh, an album they did in 2014 called Holy Vacants, which was one of the great lost albums of the 2010s for me. And um, when, when they played this magnificent set, um, my friends sort of said, I... I wasn't a fan, but I can see why you like it. And <laughs> I, I hated that so much. <laughs> I feel but, like you uh, must hear that a lot, though, Ollie. <laughs> yeah. Still hate it, though. But anyway, um, yeah, Trophy Scars are back. They've got a new single out. Chris, you should love them because they're a, they're a post-hardcore band that sound like they fucking adore Tom Waits. Hello. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Holy Vacants, I'm going to give a shout-out to on this episode, but they're back with a new album uh, out soon, and I'll put something from Holy Vacants on. So, uh, from Holy Vacants on the playlist so people can fucking listen to that fucking record because it's magnificent. <laughs> The last band I'm going to shout out are Dune, spelt D-V-N-E, so Duvney, um, Scottish progressive metal band that sound like... Disqualified on principle. No. If um, you have to specify the ridiculous spelling of a band's name. <laughs> no, but Rob, 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 you, you, you might be in here. Um, they're a metal band that, don't, that are good, so you might like them. Uh, and by, by which, do you mean they sing, or...? They sing a bit, but uh, they sound like Leviathan-era Mastodon crossed with Neurosis and Cult of Luna, like the best parts of. Could you, could you spell that name again? D-V-N-E. Awkward bastards. Awkward, awkward <laughs> bastards. But they're, and this, they're, this they're album, from... of course, it's got the fucking non-Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, AE sound from Tools Enema in it, hasn't it? Of course Correct. It has. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, the album's called Etiment Anchor, uh, but it's fucking phenomenal. It's it's probably my favourite metal album of the year so Anchorman. far. Anchorman. <laughs> Anchorman, indeed. Well, we started with an Anchorman reference. I figured we may as well end one. And I meant to say, by the way, at the top, um, I agree. That is the worst <laughs> sequel of all time. Indeed, even worse than Zoolander 2. Um, worse than Year of the Black Rainbow. <laughs> Possibly. 
<laughs> uh, thank you very much for having me on. It's been an insane amount of fun, and I'm looking forward well, to the next part where I think there are going to be some absolutely. spicy opinions. <laughs> Indeed. So, um, yes, we'll be back in four weeks with Rob, but for the time being, do you want to plug your shit? I mean, so, I no longer really have much to plug. You can follow me on Twitter at puns and roses, which is puns <laughs> underscore n underscore roses. I did not think the syntax of that through when I was registering it, um, but it's the reason Ollie and I are friends because he came up to me at a garden party once and said, "Hi, I just want to say I really like your Twitter handle." <laughs> so I feel like uh sometimes i talk about music sometimes i talk about absolute garbage but uh you know if you've enjoyed this you might enjoy that so that's yeah. my pluggable likewise um likewise for me i'm on at o-double-l-i-e-x-c-o-r-e on the x core and chris at cm grubs so follow us come shout at us about our coheed opinions um, come shout at us, uh, at us about anything, about any of our previous episodes, any of our previous shout outs or rankings, whether you're loving it, whether you're hating it. Just interact with us because it's COVID and we're lonely. Um, <laughs> please, please and, um, follow us, somebody. Chris, me, and Rob will be back in four weeks with the second part of Coheed for, like I said, the Aftermans, Colour Before the Sun. Vaxis and our top five and more shout outs so see you then sorry for, uh, thank you for bearing with us for all that time hope you've enjoyed it um this second slightly more party atmosphere especially and um yeah we'll see you soon take care everyone